and welcome to Making Connections News. I'm your host, Mimi Pickering. On this episode, three amazing individuals tell us about their efforts to make their communities, be they local, regional, or statewide, a better place to live and thrive. Attorney John Rosenberg, who just turned 90, is the founding director of the Kentucky Office of Appalachian Research and Defense Fund, APPLERED, and a founder of the Appalachian Citizens Law Center. Jerry Fultz is the mayor of Wayland, Kentucky, where he and other community leaders are doing big things to keep that small town going. We end with an interview with Lou Wallace, who's been a major player in successful efforts to revitalize St. Paul and neighboring communities along the Clinch River in southwestern Virginia. Here's the interview with John Rosenberg. Welcome to Eastern Standard, produced for WEKU by Dynamics Productions. I'm Tom Martin. Thanks for joining us. Even though I was only seven years old, I do remember that night very vividly and those events very vividly. John Rosenberg, entering the 90th year of a lifetime of fighting for the rights of the people of Eastern Kentucky, often successfully. Recently, at Snug Hollow Farm in Estill County, I sat down with the founder of the Kentucky office of Apple Red Legal Services for a conversation about that lifetime, beginning with that night in 1938 when, as a young boy in Magdeburg, Germany, he and his family were forced from their home by Nazi soldiers. It was the night of broken glass, Kristallnacht. I think about my parents and their circumstances and what they then had to adjust to from a middle-class life in a very nice, fairly sizable Jewish community. My father is a school teacher, and uh, then to have to leave, have to, he endured 17 days in a concentration camp in Buchenwald, and my mom went and spent the night from house to house and sent my brother to, who was only two at that time, to a family uh, that had previously had, whose uh, daughter had been a babysitter. Upon his release from Buchenwald, Rosenberg's father was ordered, along with his family, to leave Germany. They ended up in a detention camp in the Netherlands, and a year later managed to board one of the last ships to the United States. To eventually come to this country and have nothing, and basically be, uh, have my father start as a janitor in a textile mill, sweeping floors, and being a part-time rabbi, um, those are making, making that adjustment, different language, different social customs, basically being immigrants in this country, to this country, and uh, starting all over again. And thank goodness that we were able to get to this country. Rosenberg went on to serve as an Air Force navigator and then to earn a law degree from Duke University, becoming a trial attorney and section chief in the Civil Rights Division of the Justice Department, where he met Jean, who would become his wife. I've always been fortunate to be in a position that I cared about, that we, Jean and I, my wife, uh, now about 54 years, we've always done things together, raised our kids and still doing it together that uh, we'd like to be of service where we are and to uh, help our neighbors and our community where we are. So I think that's been sort of a theme, especially since we've uh, 
was unfortunate to be in this country. I think mm -hmm. it all goes back to the fact that my parents, my father and mother, even when we didn't have any money, were very patriotic. They always were so grateful to be in this country. Rosenberg was responsible for the first trial under the Voting Rights Act of 1965. He was heavily involved in the investigation and trial preparation for the case involving three murdered civil rights workers, the case portrayed in the 1988 film Mississippi Burning. One day, as the Rosenbergs were traveling, they heard from former colleagues at the Justice Department who were working to provide legal services to people living in poverty in Appalachia. There was a need for an office in eastern Kentucky. It sounded very interesting. And so then we drove on uh, and drove to Eastern Kentucky and drove to Prestonburg and came in one evening and you just said in Jenny Wiley State Park and we put our tent up. It was sort of towards uh, the end of September. We were really had figured out of going, or my parents at that point had been retired to West Palm Beach, Florida and we were gonna go visit them for the Jewish holidays, which were coming up for us in Shona and Yom Kippur. And so we got in there fairly late. There was no one else at the campground but us. Gene said, you better go out and see if there are any bears around. <laughs> so, um, you know, this was all quite new and the issues were new. And so we, we went over to Letcher County and spoke to Harry Caudill, the author of Night Comes to the Cumberlands who was then actually, I think, still a member of the Apple Red Board in West Virginia, the board that Paul had put together. There was a wonderful fellow who ran a country store in uh, Blackie named Joe Begley. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and Joe gave us a good lecture on the broad form deed issues and uh, that we can talk about some more. But mm -hmm. uh, we... Uh, met some folks, uh, Eula Hall in Prestonsburg, some of the welfare rights people, and kind of got an idea of what the issue of what of the fact that there would there were lots of legal issues that uh, that needed to be addressed, and that low-income people and Joe Begley was very strong about this because he said we we're in a very there's a lot of poverty in this area, and there are a lot of issues. Not just the broad form deed, but a lot of other civil legal needs that people just simply don't have any representation, can't afford a lawyer. And uh, so we left there and drove on down to Florida. And on the way, we decided that we would give it a shot. Rosenberg opened the first Kentucky office of the Appalachian Research and Defense Fund, Appelred, in Prestonsburg. That was 50 years ago. Along the way, he was involved in setting up the Appalachian Citizens Law Center in Whitesburg to help former coal miners and their families secure black lung benefits. He held leadership roles in the American and Kentucky Bar Associations and the Kentucky Public Advocacy Commission. He mentioned the broad form deed. Kentucky sort of was one of the few states, I think there might have been one other, Montana, where that uh, held this, this uh, interpretation which uh, allowed coal companies to mine regardless of whether the surface owner uh, agreed or not uh, without surface owner consent. And then the surface owner was still paying the taxes on the property. There was a need for legal representation, but the cost of hiring attorneys was out of reach. With the establishment of Appelred, that representation had arrived. I remember we had a group from Pike County 
that I represented early on in Maribone on Corbottom uh, that uh, we ended up having to go to Frankfurt. For, and that's a big, and these folks on that holler went to Frankfurt with me day after day for a hearing. That's a long trip and we started to have an administrative hearing. The problem there was, and we, we got an expert witness. They were proposing to surface mine the uh, really along the holler under which there were a lot of homes. Mm. And we demonstrated that that the seam of coal they wanted to strip mine had actually been deep mined years before. And they left this off the map, wasn't on the map uh, when they submitted their permit applications. And that those deep mine workings years later now had uh, were full of water. Hmm. So that if the surface mining had, had hit those uh, previous deep mine workings, that water would have come down on all these people. And, uh, and uh, that was one of the first permits after a hearing that was denied. Rosenberg retired in 2002, air quotes around that word retire, he's still at it, serving in a variety of projects and board memberships. The occasion of this interview was the filming of a video for the September celebration of Apple Red's 50th year of service that has included not only key mine safety and black lung benefits work, but also hiring many of the region's first female lawyers and writing the grants to start domestic violence shelters, saving the Red River Gorge from becoming a reservoir, protecting Robinson Forest, working for reforms against check cashers and for rights for prisoners, suing the state parks and housing authorities for racial discrimination in hiring and housing, establishing the first clinics in the state for people with AIDS, as well as the first clinics for migrant farm workers, and starting a medical legal partnership. Most recently, Appleread came to the aid of hundreds of mountain residents who lost Social Security benefits after Eric Kahn, one of the most prolific social security disability lawyers in the country, admitted to using fraudulent evidence in clients' claims and paying kickbacks to a social security judge. In every county, every low-income consumer, client should have the opportunity to get to legal services and to have representation in a case that's important to them, regardless of their age or their economic circumstances. I've only scratched the surface here. We're hoping for a memoir, and that is a hint, Mr. Rosenberg. You can listen to the entire interview with John Rosenberg online. Just Google Apple Red Legal Aid, and you'll find it right there on the homepage. That website for more of the interview is Apple Red, A-P-P-A-L-R-E-D. Last spring, I had a chance to sit down with another Floyd Countyan. Jerry Fultz is the mayor of Wayland, a town of about 400 stretched along Highway 7. We met at the Wayland Community Center, a local gathering place filled with the history of this coal mining town. The mayor talked about how they are using the community's past to create a brighter future for Wayland. My name is Jerry Fultz. Uh, my family moved here. In the summer of 1955, uh, my dad had uh, a leg cut off in a mining accident and could no longer work in the mines at Wheelwright for Inland Steel. So they moved him over to this side of the, the Beaver Creeks. He came over to Right Beaver from Left Beaver 
to operate a bathhouse about 10 miles up the road in Knott County. And without a leg, he couldn't drive, but he had a ride here. So we moved to Wayland, basically, to keep uh, him a job. And he actually passed away with a heart attack that same summer. And uh, there were six of us in school, six boys, <laughs> five boys, I'm sorry, five boys in school at the time. My oldest brother and, and sister had moved on. Uh, I started first grade here at Wayland and fell in love with the little town and have basically been here ever since. There was a period uh, from 67 until 1980 that after graduating from high school here, we kind of wandered around through the college years and uh, then coaching and teaching until 1980 we returned. And it was uh, kind of a, an awakening of sorts, but things had changed. The people I had grown up with and the people that were the adults when I was a kid growing up here, many had moved on or passed away. And even the classmates and people that I had gone to school with, many of them had left, obviously for jobs. So uh, it's, it's, it was kind of tough that first year, it truly was. But uh, I guess the good Lord had something in store for me and, and a job for me to do. And I think uh, for whatever reason, I, I owe a lot of who I am and where I am and where I come from to my mother. She raised uh, five boys, <laughs> put, put us all through school. So I give credit to, to my mom uh, for, I guess, largely who I am and what, what, what has value for me. And giving back and living in a community such as Whalen uh, is important to put back some of what I took with me. And I think that was all good memories that, that I, I grew up with here. So it's been a good thing. So that's basically who I am. I spent uh, a good portion of my life, uh, 30 years in education throughout the state and out of state before returning and, and ending my career here. I think I retired in 02. And, uh, but, the, but the piece of holding on to that past has been with me maybe long before I even knew it. So I go back to Wayland. As I said, we came here in 55, but it's my understanding that somewhere between 1911 and 1914, Elkhorn Coal built the town of Wayland as a coal camp. And a coal camp being uh, no more than its purpose being, I guess, to mine coal, to make money for the company. And along with that, obviously, they provided housing, hospitals, schools, uh, utilities, the company usually provided all of those things, as well as a job and some security. But the primary purpose and function of a coal camp is to make money for the coal company. And Whalen did just that for many, many years. So the town itself was built in 1911, 1914. At one time, uh, I think the population in Wayland reached somewhere close to 4,000 people, which would have made it probably the largest city in Floyd County, one of the larger cities in eastern Kentucky. The mining operation here reached its peak, it was a deep mines, and the mining operation here reached uh, its peak with about 1,200 people working at, at the coal preparation plant here for Elkhorn Coal. 1,200 people today would be a pretty big operation today. So you can imagine the amount of coal that went out of here. So I, I look at the mural on the wall, and that's probably the way Wayland looked when I came in 1955. That's pretty much the way it looked. 
the old post office was originally the Bank of Whalen. The theater, of course, is gone. The office building, the Scripp office building is gone. The jail house is still here. Probably the only two buildings that we have remaining of the original buildings uh, are here for a reason. They were brick. Everything else was wood frame. Across the road from the jail was the hospital, and then the hotel, the little restaurant, and the super Walmart of its day was the company store. The train depot, Whalen was the end of the tracks. There was a turntable here. When the train came up from Ashland, Paintsville, Prestonsburg, and on up to Whalen, when it got to Whalen, they pulled the steam engine out on the turntable and it actually manually turned that thing around and headed it back down the tracks. So that's the layout of Whalen. And again, I, I said earlier, that about 4,000 people maybe at one time when it reached its peak. In 1954, the deep mines closed. And with the closing of the deep mines, went our purpose. So we struggled, and I say we, I wasn't very old at the time, obviously, uh, but I think the community as a whole and those that were the mayors, the city commission, the elders of the community, I think there was a struggle. And uh, I think probably, uh, for lack of a better term, there was an outmigration of locals who wanted to have work, provide for their families, had good work ethic and so on. They went to where the jobs were, which typically was out of the area. And the next big thing that just sticks out in my mind that makes it very difficult even today, uh, another one of those life-changing things is when the high school closed. Most often, small communities, the school is kind of like the heart of a community. It's the pulse. It's the thing that binds people together. So in 1971-72 was the last year for Whalen High School. And from that point on, it really was a struggle to keep the community a community. The school was no longer here. I never rode a bus to school. I walked to school as well as both of my kids started school here. So it's, it's a different world without that school in the community. The elementary school did stay open until 1990. And with the closing of the elementary school, <laughs> it really became a tough thing. So we probably wandered, having lost our purpose, we kind of wandered through and what, you know, uh, what do we do and how do we do this thing? The people of Wayland did not give up hope. Today, the heart of the small town is the three-story Wayland Community Center, which features a 1950s-style party room with soda fountain and jukebox that is available for community events. Housed upstairs is the extensive Wayland Historical Society collection and the Denver Collier Room, which includes artifacts and equipment used at Elkhorn Coal Corporation mines as well as a 3D model of Wayland as it was in the 1940s. As he sat against a wall-length mural depicting Wayland in its heyday, Fultz described the center's importance. We started building this building in 94 and got into it in 96 and it really has, it brings joy. Most all of our community gatherings through the years, from the closing of the high school and closing of the grade school, we've had community gatherings, but they always occurred at the school. Without the school, we really didn't have that site and that, that building or that, per, that, that place to do that. 
So that's one of the things that this building has served. It's kind of keep folks together. They come back for uh, funerals, weddings, uh, vacationing, and they have a place to be. They can come into this building and reminisce and relive a lot of good times. Many times they bring kids. They bring their grandkids, and in some cases, we've had great grandkids, and that's a wonderful experience to have. To have them sit down and look through yearbooks, uh, reminisce with what they see in this room and the coal room and other rooms, and the stories that are told are pretty special, pretty special, pretty special. The folks in Wayland have more plans to build on their history and heritage. So I'd like to think that we today are repurposing and reusing. I'd like to say something uh, that maybe our future is actually in our past. I, I very much appreciate the fact that uh, this is a coal camp. Uh, I have no issues whatsoever with saying that we probably need to move on because coal is not going to be what it was. But that heritage and that culture that mining camps provided was a good one. It's truly a good one. And uh, I, I see things that have developed over the last few years that give me hope. Uh, and I, I, I tell people at the county level, at the state level, at the national level, I've given the opportunity, you know, if we can create a better place to live in Wayland, then Floyd County is a better place to live. If Floyd County is better, then Eastern Kentucky is better. And if Eastern Kentucky is a better place to live, Kentucky's a better place. And so, you know, a small group of people can make a difference. And I think we have. I think if you've given the time, if you look around this, this building, and if you go to the gymnasium, we have purchased the school property. We're doing some work out there. We've re, uh, repurposed the old Wayland Gym, built in 1937. It's been completely remodeled. Now it's ADA compliant. We have hopes and dreams of doing something with the old high school building. So I think there's a plan, uh, and uh, the city government is very, very much involved in what goes on in the community, obviously, as leaders. And so there's a 5, 10, 15, 20-year, long-range, strategic, comprehensive plan that guides us. So we, we are looking forward to the future, making things better. That was Mayor Jerry Fultz, interviewed at the Wayland Community Center in May 2021. Next, we'll hear from Lou Wallace, another inspiring community leader. Virginia Governor Ralph Northam recently hosted the annual conference of the Appalachian Regional Commission in St. Paul, Virginia. Around 100 federal and state officials, regional leaders, and economic development experts sampled the local foods, downtown brewery, boutique hotel, and outdoor recreation activities that can now be enjoyed in this Clinch River area. It's a testament to the many years of work by Lou and her colleagues that the governor wanted to show off this corner of southwestern Virginia. My name is Lou Wallace. I'm a native of Southwest Virginia, namely Russell County in the Castlewood area. Um, I have uh, currently lived in the town of St. Paul, uh, an annexed portion of St. Paul, for about 40 years. And um, my husband and three children reside here, and two grandchildren. And um, I created a nonprofit in the town of St. Paul about 20 years ago, uh, along with uh, a co 
friend of mine. We co-created. I did not do it by myself, nor have I done this by myself without a strong team of folks. Back in 1998, I guess it was, I was placed on the town council. And um, I sat there and I wondered and wondered when we were ever going to do anything that would straighten up the town. And I drove into town every day to my work and saw buildings that were not filled like they were when I was a child and they were falling down and things just weren't, um, weren't being worked on and no one seemed to be discussing this and so I asked if we could get some help and look at doing some things. The mayor at that time and the council was very receptive to this idea and so we began to discuss it and then I reached out to the Nature Conservancy and uh, a friend of mine, Bill Kittrell, was the program manager for the Southwest or the Clutch River, uh, Clutch Valley uh, program. And he came over and we had a discussion and um, the rest is history. We found out that we live beside the most biodiverse river in the Commonwealth, probably east of the Mississippi, maybe second to the Amazon. Uh, we'll just stretch it a little bit. But the truth being is we had no clue as to what we had in our own backyard. One of the pieces that when we started the nonprofit, we sat down and we sat around the table and we had deep discussions about priorities. We had deep discussions about the threats that were happening in our communities. And so we identified those with the help of some experts. And so we created a vision for the year 2020 that the town of St. Paul would be an ecological destination. Now go figure that one. But we knew we had a gem. We knew we had to persevere. And certainly we did. So within that strategic plan, it had um, action steps. And those action steps were, we wanted to see a farmer's market come to town. We wanted to give advantages to our agricultural community. Now remember, Wise County and the town of St. Paul sit in coal country. Across the river in Russell County is agricultural land. So we had to change the, the idea of how we do business in coal country. And that afforded us to get senior coupons. The SNAP program was not even recognized in coal country because you were in coal country. You weren't doing anything agriculture. So that changed the perception of how people buy and sell at a farmer's market in coal country, which I thought was really a unique thing. So we, we built a farmer's market. We sold the idea to the local farmers and the, and the farming community and the agro-producer community. And we knew that we wanted to be Virginia grown. And so we stick to our, we created bylaws. We worked with VDACs, USDA. And so those are the folks that helped us to create that farmer's market, which is really doing well today on Saturdays. So anyway, our next thing was water quality and the environment, and we wanted to look at that. And so we began to work hand-in-hand -hand with ST Mestanoa. At that time, they were coming along with their wetlands, and it was student-driven. And so we knew that we needed to recognize that piece and so we also said a few more things. We wanted to do downtown revitalization. Now remember, that's what spurred me on from the time I became a town councilwoman was how our buildings are not functioning like they used to. 
But you know, I had to rethink that. Our buildings don't function the way they used to now. But we pivoted, we recreated an economy that is unlike what we had when I was growing up as a child. A dime store, a jewelry store, a florist, a mercantile, so to speak, a bank. We've got at least one left in our town. But the fact of the matter is we don't have all those things because Walmart saw that we don't have those in Costco. There's not a thing wrong in that. That's part of change. But what we looked at was we cannot allow our small towns, our downtowns, to wither away and people move away. We must do something to enhance those towns, to enhance the quality of life, and make sure that people still want to live here, visit here, work here, play here. So that, that's the thinking that we use to make this work. So then our downtowns became a part of our strategic plan. And then the last piece was putting together an old theater that was in the town of St. Paul. And currently, we're on our very last piece of fulfilling a 20-year strategic plan. And it's like nothing that I've ever seen done. So we're, we're really working on that. We're, we're just, and I say this affectionately and not facetiously, but we're just about a million so away from having that done. Now, people listening to this will go, oh my gosh, a million dollars is a lot of money. Yes, it is. Certainly it is. But we learned that we started out with very small grants. I think our first one that we found that we were getting in this room was $5,000. And we were rejoicing. We were jumping up and down because that was a success story. We felt empowered. We were successful. And so we took that learning experience of how we got that money and we started parlaying it into larger grants. Today, if you came to me and said, Lou, I've got this $5,000 grant, but it's going to take you about a week and a half to do it, and you're going to have to do research, and you're going to have to sit up all night long and do this, that, and the other, I'm going to say, no, thank you. But another community who needs to be empowered and feel like they need that, that extra little ump is going to say, I'll do it. So that's why I said, excuse me for saying it's just a million dollars, because currently we probably have garnered well over 20 to 22, maybe 25 million dollars that has been put into infrastructure, buildings, um, you name it, and we have accomplished some of those goals. But Department of Housing and Community Development came back to us and said, you have fulfilled your strategic plan like no other. Let us do help you do another one. So we have done another strategic plan, and it focuses on the year 2050 probably. And uh, I can't remember all the strategies in that, but it gets a little more difficult. <laughs> so we tried to keep it simple for us, and now we're on a different plateau, I guess you might say. And, and I understand you also are working well beyond St. Paul. How have you, um, this little nut that cracked open here, how has it expanded and included communities all along the river? Well, the beautiful thing about this is, um, you know, when success, success breeds success. And people get interested when you start showing success and you're excited and you're inclusive and you've got a multitude of geniuses just about at the table. You want to be a part of that. That's fun stuff. 
And so the door is always open to anybody and everybody that wants to step in, contribute. But listen, when you become our friend, we're going to call on you and say, friend, remember we had this conversation, so come along. So um, going back to your question of how we have reached beyond the borders of the town of St. Paul, we did intend that we would be regional thinkers when we started that first strategic plan. And Department of Housing and Community Development came back to us and said, you know, you're just working in the town of St. Paul. And we all said, look, we had to start somewhere. But along the way, we knew that we were going to reach out to other towns. We didn't know how or why. But along came an initiative that's been affectionately called the Clinch River Valley Initiative. It started in 2010 at a meeting at UVA Wise. And that became... Um, that became something that all of us are still pinching ourselves over. And the initiative basically used about the same model that we had been modeling here in the town of St. Paul. So you have action groups, you identify needs, and you get a vision and a goal and you work toward it. It's a grassroots effort. You don't bring, you leave your hat at the table or at the door or wherever. You don't come in with all your predisposed uh, uh, intentions or thoughts because we're all in one room together. We're, we're very diverse um, from the environment to um, the, the government agencies of all shapes, sorts, and sizes and to the nonprofits. And all of those folks found a seat at the table. They all had a voice. And what we did, we didn't really vote yes or no. We voted by consensus. So when our facilitation committee came in, which was an IEN team of uh, UVA, which is um, Institute for Environmental Negotiation. And so when you came into the room, like I say, we were all equal. And so when we voted, it was um, a one, two, or a three. One yes, two no, maybe, and three no. But everybody saw your fingers go up. And so it, it was a good thing. And so we all were, we all felt like, okay, everybody sees how we're voting. Doesn't matter. We'll work through that. So those folks who gave us the uh, opportunity to voice ourselves, out of that came some outstanding ideas that we all began to brace because it says the Clinch River Valley. Well, guess what? The first two words, Clinch River, which goes back to the beginning that most of us here in the town of St. Paul had no idea about the asset that was flowing and we were drinking. Um, so it just became a beautiful piece. So the Clinch River Valley comes along and now we're all talking about the whole entire valley, the whole entire watershed. So that steps St. Paul, who is kind of a model already, but that puts them in a, at a different seat, and most of us here who had the expertise of doing what we were doing, and by the way, we're all volunteers. None of us ever get one dime, one dime out of doing what we're doing. We do it because we have a fire in our bellies to do so, and that's my terms. But anyway, getting back to the Clinch River Initiative, we brought more people in and said, come in and be part of this. Come sit at the table with us. And uh, towns, uh, Cleveland came in, Dungannon came in, 
and their voices was heard because we're all unique. We're just like human beings. The towns that sit beside the river or on the tributaries, we're all different and unique, just like each human being sitting at the table. And so all those came in and we're, we were very inclusive of, of that and we recognized their needs. And they recognized that they weren't going to have some of the things that the town of St. Paul could afford. But that didn't mean that they could not work toward certain goals. And we encouraged that and tried to lift them up through that whole initiative. Like the visioning that we did for the town of St. Paul and the strategic planning with the goals, we used goals in the Clinch River Valley Initiative. One goal was to put access points on the river. And so we didn't want to get too awfully big, but we wanted to be successful. So we tried to identify at least four access points. That's been tough. So we identified one that was upriver that gave us about an hour to an hour and a half. It's according to what um, kind of, if you're in a canoe, or a kayak, or a tube, it's, it gives you that different hour time or, or time-wise. And so we didn't want to, what I call, kill a tourist because people come here with the idea that they're going to have a warm, they have a warm and a fuzzy feeling about getting on that river, floating and enjoying it, appreciating it, and loving it. And so if you put them on there for too many hours, a friend of mine came from Richmond and she floated a very long way and she got off and she said, I don't think I'm going to need to float for a while. So what we found out was you want to make sure that you have enough access points to where folks have that warm and fuzzy feeling when they come off and they go, that was great. I got to call such and such and tell them to come here from Maine or Nebraska. And that's what we're seeing now, by the way. And have those people come here to enjoy what we enjoy. And it also is our economic engine. And so we're creating an economy around an asset-based piece of infrastructure. That's what I call it because the river is a piece of infrastructure that we're currently using it. And the more we use it, the more the community sees that it is an asset, the more the community embraces it because it is their asset. It belongs to the people. It belongs to them. And they're proud. They're beginning to be proud. And that has developed the community pride that we all wanted when we started our excellent adventure. So I know um, you also are, have worked in communities that are more coal camp or coal center, and you've, you've been dealing with some of the abandoned mine land stuff. Could you talk a little bit about that? Uh, this is, it's a difficult road when you uh, delve into federal and state funds. It is not an easy road, uh, road to hoe, let's put it that way, because it has so many strings attached to it. And that's very hard when you get down into the middle of a community who hasn't had some of the experiences that I've had on how you deal with funding and the layering of funding and the time it takes to put get that funding, get it on the ground, and even get to the point where, get the permitting done where you can actually see a difference. Because the immediate low-hanging fruit with uh, an AML project is not quick. I've been on some for a couple of years. So um, it's disheartening in a way, and if you're in a community, I'm going to start out with this, but if you're in a community that doesn't quite understand, they think that, oh my goodness, next year I'm going to have this done. 
And so after 20 years of working through some of the issues that we've worked through here to be successful in the town of St. Paul and beyond its borders, it's hard to tell people, be patient, it's coming, be patient, it's coming. And so what we did here in the town of St. Paul, it took a while for everybody to see what was going to happen. The revelation, let's say, of what was happening in a downtown, and the renaissance, you might say. And so when you take it to a coal camp, who has been, oh my goodness, first of all, you're dependent on a coal company. So you call up the coal company and say, look, my road is washed out. Can you fix it? Yep, coal company runs right up there and fixes the road. Okay, the water pipes are busted in the house. Can you fix it? Yep, coal company owns the house. So they're going to go right up there and fix it. Now this is the pre-sale of, of maybe 1948, 50, somewhere around in there when people did not own their own homes in a coal camp. Now they do. But some of that mindset of a coal camp is still there because everybody that's still there that remembers the days of old when we shopped at the company store, and certainly I did too, or we bought our groceries at the company store, and I did too. And But anyway, those days are still longed for by certain folks. I get it. They want to go back to the time when life was good living in a coal camp. Now I understand sometimes life was not good in a coal camp, but for the perspective that I have at the age that I am, my mother is 89. She's going to kill me. But anyway, she was born and raised in Dank, Virginia. Went to school in Dank, Virginia. Shopped at all the stores in Dank, Virginia. Had hot and cold running water in Dank, Virginia. And life was good for my mother. Life was good for my mother. She says she grew up poor. She had 11 siblings in a three-room, three-bedroom house. Now, a lot of people did that, even on a farm. So, I understand from my mother's point of view where life was good. But my mother goes back to the same place today and says, we really need to do something. So guess what? I became a board of supervisor. That's part of my district. It was meant to be. So here we go. So I have learned what I have learned to do in the town of St. Paul through passion and guts. And I have taken that same model to a community to form a nonprofit to form a little board, to make plans. And one of them looked at me one day and said, I don't have 20 years. I don't want to wait 20 years. And I said, bingo, you don't have to wait 20 years because what we did in St. Paul, we're going to take that same model and we're going to cut your years down by about half. Can you hang for 10? Well, I've been at it since uh, 2016. January 1, 2016, I walked into the Board of Supervisors and took my seat for District 2. So here we are, 2021. That's not too bad to say I've got almost a million dollars promised in that community and some of the things that's happening. Now, of course, it's not happening as fast as people want it to happen. But moving on to the abandoned mine lands and the grants that we have worked on with that, 
I have used um, a trail a trail grant and um, we have had our ups and downs with that so with that comes closures of mine portals that no one knew existed since 1910, 1920. And they've just been open portals. Those have been identified. We've been able to work on areas that might have gob. And um, I don't know if I need to explain garbage of bituminous as we affectionately call it, but anyway, your, your, your folks will understand what that is. But we've been able to identify some of those gob piles. Now what I did was I started out with an idea to use a Brownsfield grant. Now a Brownsfield grant is pollution based. It comes through DEQ, Department of Environmental Quality here in Virginia. And so with that Brownsfield grant, there was an old elementary school in Dank, Virginia sitting there on a piece of property that really no one knew how absolutely stunningly gorgeous it is. I guess they did when they were going to school there in the 50s, and it was a black school. Uh, it was closed um, when we started condensing all of our schools down and moving everybody around back to the main school here in Castlewood. But that little school was closed along with the little elementary school in Daint, which no longer has schools there. Clinchville Coal had used it as an experimental lab. And so there were a lot of core drillings on the floor of that school. And so when I said core drillings means, guess what? It may have particulates of coal in it. And so I went to um, DMME and I said, would this qualify for a DMME grant? And so they looked at it and they said, well, we'll have it tested. So in the meantime, I'm working with Virginia Tech. And so they have, um, they're working with EPA. So it turns out that uh, there wasn't coal to say it was coal impacted, but it did say, look what we found when we did an inspection, environmental inspection. So it had asbestos, it had lead, it had everything else you could name besides one particulate of coal. But it got a Brownsfield grant to remove the school. In the middle of that, in order to do the Brownsville grant, Virginia Brownsville grant, I have to prove that I'm gonna have an economic engine on the end of that. So what we did was we first wanted to try to save the school, but it was just far too large for a tiny community to take on. And what would we do with it? And how would we support it? So the logical thing was to take it down, make a green space, and we've put a campground there. So we're in the process of building a little campground in Dank, Virginia, where the school sat. It's, it's going to be a beauty. And along the way, I had to pull other ideas and say, well, I need water and sewer. So I went somewhere else and got water and sewer from the Southwest Virginia Water Wastewater Fund. And then I needed electricity. And then I needed a bathhouse. And then I needed a waste station to dump uh, my waste. And so I was able to get a private grant this past year to $102,000 to build a bathhouse. And guess what? That piece of property is right next door to the Nature Conservancy's new property called the Cumberland Forest Highlands, which right there directly across from that little campground is going to be um, several thousand acres that will be public lands, which was on mine lands. So that's where we're using our um, OSM money, our abandoned mine land money, to close the portals and create the trails 
on that piece of property for us to send um, visitors there for a wonderful experience and to understand that coal country can be something different. Yeah, um, let's talk about that a little bit. They, you know, there's so many stereotypes of hillbillies in our region and and uh, talk a little bit about what you what you value here, what you value from this place and, and where you've spent your whole life. The culture, the community, and the, the, just the natural assets that we have. And I realize, and I have done many talks with a lot of folks, and um, they say, are you a native? And I said, yes, I am. Can't you hear my drawl here and my twang? And, but I have a professional communications degree. I have a marketing degree. Uh, my husband's a professional land surveyor and engineer, so we are, we're here, we're educated, we're global travelers, but we can come home and say, this is home, and it's beautiful. And when you embrace who you are, no matter where you are on this planet, when you embrace who you are, what makes you who you are, and you have value that puts you in a place where you can be happy and content in the hills of Southwest Virginia. And, um, you know, I told you my mother came from a coal camp, so apparently everybody's going to think, well, what did her parents do? My mother's father was a railroader. My mother's brothers were railroaders. My mother married a railroader. My father. And so this is the legacy that I have. I embrace that. That's who we are. So you see, when you embrace who you are, where you come from, don't run from anything. Be proud of who you are. And I think a lot of people in today's world, I'm going to get into theory here, but it, it kind of fits with the coal, with the coal camp legacy and, and, and everything and how America and the globe perceives everything. But when we embrace who we are, where we came from, and and let people know this is our culture. I'm I'm mixed. Uh, I'm mixed. I'm all mixed up with uh, 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 English. Uh, my grandmother was a McConnell. My grandfather was a Steffi. So there's German in there. Uh, my father was Portuguese. A little bit of Portuguese. A little bit of American Indian. And um, you know these are parts and pieces of us. So we're all unique and different. But they loved what they did. They came here to work. They came here for a better place to raise their children. And they made a way. And in a coal camp in Dank, Virginia, we have blended families and we have blended recipes. My mother can tell me about going to school with people she didn't even understand. And she'd go over and visit their grandparents. Now, the children could speak the same language. They all seemed to understand each other well. But we have those Hungarian recipes, um, the Czechoslovakians. So I cherish that because that is who we are, and that's what makes us who we are. So it's a beautiful piece. But fast-forwarding on to today, no one wants to live in Dank, Virginia. I shouldn't say it that way. Um, it's not the place where they remember. It's not the community they remember, much like all of our coal camps have become a ghost town. And if we hadn't done something in the town of St. Paul, I feel like it would have become that same piece because we're seeing that in our larger communities. You first start seeing it trickling out of the hollers, as I say, 
and then it trickles on and trickles on. So where do we stop it? And I was in a meeting um, a couple of years ago, and they said, oh, here's the places on the globe that's going to have all the citizens in them. And they had big circles on the globe. And I'm like, well, there's nobody in Southwest Virginia, it didn't look like. And I said, why did you say that? And they said, well, the trend is, this is how the trend is going. It's all, all the folks are being pulled toward the East Coast. And it had this big circle that encompassed Virginia, D.C., some of North Carolina, but it was all that piece. So all of us was being left behind. And I said, what's going to stop that? And they said, well, we just don't know. But COVID stopped it. <laughs> and it can be a curse or a blessing. But we found out that our hills and hollers are not very well lit. And we've got to do something about that because there's valuable people still living in our hills and hollers, in our coal camps, that we can revive just like we're reviving the town of St. Paul. And I am working on a housing program. I'm working on uh, workforce development coming to do a virtual training center in a steam building in Dank, Virginia. I'm working on the campground. I've got money lined up for the old depot, the railroad depot, which um, CSX line runs through there and they were going to lease it to us and they found out we had these beautiful plans by the way from my friends at Virginia Tech and the the plans were so grand that they said we'll just give it to you no lease promise for us we'll just give it to you so we now own the county we owns the depot and about two hundred fifty thousand dollars in uh, Virginia Department of Transportation enhancement money to put it back together. Construction should start on that sometime in the fall. The campground is proposed to be finished sometime in the fall. The steam building, I just had a conversation with DMME today for abandoned mine lands money to put the steam building together for a virtual training center. That's about seven hundred and some thousand dollars. And we're talking about Starlink and the satellites, and Elon Musk, and lighting day with a satellite. So, it's incredible, and we're having, we're going to end up with probably about 9 to 10 miles of walking trails, hiking trails, and uh, Spearhead Trail is getting ready to put an extension from Mountain View here in St. Paul onto Dank, Virginia. So you'll be able to ride your ATV through the mountainside and the beautiful woods to date. That's amazing. You just talked about all these funds coming in, but I'm sure there's more needed. What would you, what message would you like to give to um, legislators and, and Congress people and the Biden administration as they consider, you know, making more investments in the region? What, what have you learned or what, what would you, what would you want to say to them? Well, one of the things I really want to say is come here. Let me put you on a tour bus. And let's talk, and let me let you see, and let me say, oh, do you, do you know what was here, or do you see any coal product here? Because what you won't see is you'll see that we have done some cleanup. Now, like I say, there's good and bad with everything. But the water quality issues here are important to me. Because, I, like I said, again, I'm drinking it, my grandchildren are drinking it, we're drinking the water that flows freely in our rivers. And so I think it's important that we make sure that everybody knows we need to clean up, we need to continue 
the cleanup of our got piles. And we need to make sure that we're taking care of that. And we had a slide that happened at one of ours in Dake, Virginia. And um, if that had, had continued to have slid on further down into the little creek, it would have dammed that little creek up and it would have flooded the whole entire holler of everybody above that. And so we don't know how we would have gotten the elderly out. And so these are still issues that we need to look at. But while we're looking at issues of cleanup, let's not forget there is viability still in these old hills and hollers. There's good things to happen in these old hills and hollers. And I would say to President Biden and the rest of Congress, come and see my Southwest Virginia and let me tell you what I need because I do need money to clean up, fix up, and make the earth better because we're still living here, we're still drinking the water and breathing the air. These are necessary things to life. But we also need to make, be cognizant of our economy here and how we're going to make that economy better. But I, I would invite anyone that wants to come and, and have a good common sense conversation because we all need to be at the table. And that's what it's going to take, is all of us. It doesn't matter. When you come into a Kirby meeting, you're not a Democrat, you're not a Republican, you're not an Independent. You're a person, you're a voice, and you're honored. And that's how we need to do business. Lou ended the interview with some powerful words to reflect on. Now, I'm a disruptor. I am. I ask questions. I ask hard questions. I make demands. And someone said, you know, if you want anything done, call Lou, she'll just go break down the door. Because I'm really insistent, but I want to do it in love with a heart that is good and good intentions. Uh, I have no personal thing, I have no personal, personal thing in this, no advantage to Lou. Uh, I still gonna live my life the way I'm living my life because I'm a very fortunate woman in that respect. But I don't need anything. I don't need any accolades. I don't need anything. But I need my community and the people living in my community and the people that I represent to be able to have hope and a quality of life and a future that is so bright because my grandchildren, I want them to stay. Thank you for listening to Making Connections News. We heard from John Rosenberg, thanks to Tom Martin at Eastern Standard, Jerry Fultz from Wayland, and Lou Wallace from Southwestern Virginia. All of our stories about opportunities and challenges for diversifying Appalachia's economy and renewing our communities are available on our website, makingconnectionsnews.org, or wherever you find your podcasts. I'm your host, Mimi Pickering, for Making Connections News and WMMT Mountain Community Radio.